0: Welcome to the Pacific Spine and Pain Society podcast for residents, fellows, and new attendings. A casual conversation, like the ones had after a presentation, in the Floro Suite, or in the clinic, designed to give you insight about interventional spine, pain medicine, neuromodulation, regenerative medicine, and minimally invasive spine techniques. And now, here's your host, Dr. Daniel Orlovich. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for joining the PSPS Surgical Webinar Series. This is a very exciting new webinar series for the PSPS Society, and we are going to be starting the program in just two minutes to allow a few more people time to join us. Again, thank you for joining the PSPS Surgical Webinar Series tonight. We are excited you've joined us, and we will start the program in just two minutes. Good evening. For those of you who are just joining us, welcome to the PSPS Surgical Webinar Series. We are so excited you've joined us this evening. This is an exciting new program for the Pacific Spine and Pain Society. We will begin the program in just one more minute to allow a few more people time to log on. Again, if you're just joining us, welcome to the PSPS Surgical Webinar Series. We will begin the program in just another minute. Fantastic. Thank you everyone for joining the Pacific Spine and Pain Society's surgical webinar series. This is a very exciting new program for the Pacific Spine and Pain Society. And I'd like to introduce Dr. Jason who will be kicking off this series for us all.
1: Michelle, thank you. And thanks for everyone that's attending. Um, As chairman of the Pacific Spine and Pain Society, I wanna welcome you to this exciting event. Uh, You know, it's interesting when we think about the swath of different procedures that we have to treat uh, different spinal uh, challenges, sometimes it's hard to know what to reach for and uh, having a really collaborative relationship with surgeons is critical uh, as the space has evolved uh, to include different minimally invasive strategies coming up with an algorithm that is evidence based, uh, clearly directed towards Uh, the patient is important and as the pacific spine and pain society you know we want to help foster and create the foundation uh, for this collaboration and i'm honored and excited to introduce uh, one of our board members dr brian sue he's gonna lead the event tonight and kick it off and i I look forward to uh, an exciting event so brian to you
2: thanks jason thanks so much for the opportunity i think uh there are a few societies where there's so much collaboration between surgeons and non-surgeons. Um, and I think uh, as we see in the future, surgeons are going to be more like interventionists, and interventionalists are going to start doing more surgical things. My good friend, Chole Kim, is a minimally invasive spine surgeon in San Diego. And he said this for many years, um, a little bit like, you know, cardiac surgeons not understanding doing uh, interventional cardiac stuff and kind of being behind the times. So today for learning obje- uh, objectives, we're going to try to understand the percutaneous approach to interlaminar devices and direct decompression. Um, obviously, with any CM event, we have to be familiar with the publications and the data supporting the therapy, understand patient selection, which is probably the most important, really the, the role of pain management um, within treatment for lumbar spinal stenosis. Um, I'm going to... Speak about uh, lumbar decompression actually in the setting of treatment for a degenerative spondylolisthesis, which is very controversial in the surgical field. Uh, Stephen Falowski, uh, neurosurgeon, is going to talk about percutaneous approaches for lumbar spinal decompression. Um, Vipul is going to talk about minimally invasive spinal fusion approaches. And uh, Ramon Naidu, who's one of my partners at Calortho Spine, is going to talk about when to refer to pain management uh, before or after surgery. And then I'll moderate a Q&A, and, and feel free to put your questions on the chat. Um, so I'll just kick it off um, with the first talk, which is my talk on uh, treatment of lumbar spinal stenosis in the setting of spondyloliscesis. Uh, spondyloliscesis, as many of you know, is is uh, rated by the myrodine classification 1 through 4. And really, a spondyloliscesis is any slippage in the, in the vertebral body. Um, That was the original classification in 1991 by Herkowitz in a JBJS paper. And that really led to orthopedic and neurosurgeons essentially fusing everybody that had a spondylolisthesis because they showed fusion was better than not fusing for spondylolisthesis. Our understanding of spondylolisthesis has come so far um, in understanding the differences between unstable and stable um, and not just the grades. So let me just start by presenting a few patients here. Um, This first patient, um, are they able to see my pointer when I do this, Michelle?
3: I do not see your pointer.
2: Okay. Um, Let me see. Can I take control of the pointer?
3: Let me give you control. There you go. You've got control now. I see it, Brian. Okay. You see it? There's a little bit of a lag, that's okay. Um, let's go to that prior slide. Okay. Um,
2: here we go, there's just a little bit of a lag. So th- this is a, a patient with C There's translation of the vertebral body. There's obvious kyphosis and tipping. And you can see the real difference between the neutral lateral and the flexion. Um, Here's another one of my patients. You can see um, when there is, uh, on the lateral view, there's a little bit of a slip. On the flexion view, this slip really gets much more. Um, And so I would consider both of these slips, both the one with kyphosis and translation, um, unstable spondylolisthesis, which is really different than stable spondylolisthesis. Um, In an unstable spondylolisthesis, it's the same patient where you can actually see that the spine reduces on a supine MRI and uh, on the axial view, you see these fluid-filled facets, which really indicates uh, dynamic instability. Um, this is obviously very different than this patient, where there is fixed translation, um, both on flexion and on neutral. Um, and I'll put uh, three of these next to each other, and you'll see next slide here that not all spondyloliscesis are created equal so it's fine to say you know grade one grade two spondyloliscesis but if you really want to be sophisticated and think about how different spondylolyses differ it really has to do with stability so here you can see there's kyphosis here you can see there's fixed instability fixed instability and clearly the facet joints look different here to that point um, even the literature and this is a famous sports study The title of the article in New England Journal of Medicine isn't surgical versus non-surgical treatment for uh, lumbar stable degenerative spondylolisthesis or unstable. It just simply says degenerative spondylolisthesis, and the inclusion criteria is any slippage on the lateral radiograph. So even experts, when we look at large-scale studies, aren't really teasing out stable versus unstable. And when you really look at the appendix of this paper, only eight percent of these patients had true instability, and unstable spondylolisthesis will define as greater than 10 degrees of kyphosis or four millimeters of translation. Um, This is really the first uh, really good large-scale study that was published in 2016, and these were back-to-back published studies on um, the treatment of degenerative spondylolisthesis. The first is a Swedish uh, uh, spinal stenosis study group, 247 patients, um, and of note, it included patients with stable and unstable DGEN Um, They looked at three millimeter slips. There weren't flexion extension views, but there was good follow-up. So understand, before this paper in 2016, based on the 90, 1991 Herkowitz study, everybody said, if there's a spondy, you should fuse it. And it's so crazy to think that's the dogma that's been for the past 30 years, that even when I was training we thought that there wasn't really thought into what's stable, what's unstable, et cetera. Um, in any case, uh, this study looked at um, patients and treated them either with a fusion and a decompression versus a decompression alone. Um, and Interestingly, the fusion did not result in better patient reported outcomes at two and five years. And the reoperation rate at six and a half years was 21 percent in the decompression group and 22 percent in the fusion group. What's really interesting about this paper, and you have to dive into the appendix, is as surgeons we're all thinking about, if I do a decompression, I don't want this spondy to fall apart. I don't want it to get worse. I don't want you to get restenosis. I don't want to have back pain because of the instability. Um, We're always thinking, why should I not just decompress this patient? And so Really, when you look at secondary surgeries, you should look at surgeries at the index level. And when you tease out the appendix, what's interesting is when you look at just the index level, there was only a 1% revision rate in the fusion group and a 16% revision rate in the decompression group, indicating that if you do a decompression alone in a setting of a degen spondy, the revisions typically occur because of re whether it be in the lateral recess or foramen. Um, The study that was back-to-back with that was the Goga-Wallace study, 66 patients. is a North American study. They actually excluded unstable spondees and they looked at long-term follow-up. And this study actually found that fusion was better than decompression at all time points, no difference in ODI. But the real difference in there was a 34% revision rate if you decompressed alone versus fused. And one thing to really note is that the decompression that were performed where these open midline decompressions, which is I'll show you later, is somewhat of a destabilizing procedure. So the take-home message for these two papers were essentially that there seems to be somewhat of a higher revision rate in the decompression alone, but these two papers, unfortunately, like many large-scale studies, it doesn't tease out and predict really who's going to fall apart and who's going to be okay with the decompression alone. So there are actually some radiographic predictors of who will dis- develop instability after decompression. Um, and this looks at 40 patients with three and a half year follow-up. And some of the radiographic predictors are, if there is more than a millimeter of motion, there's a 54% chance of reop. If the disc height is tall, indicating there's chance for motion across the disc height rather than a collapsed disc. And if the facet angle is highly angulated, there could be increasing instability. If you had all these three factors, there's a 75% chance of doing a revision. Um, this is another paper um, that actually looked at stable and unstable. They looked at net translation, so how much delta between flexion and extension, and they said if you had more than five millimeters, then there was 80% chance that this slip would progress. Um, what about back pain? This is a 1600 patient study. Uh, Many patients, many surgeons say that um, if you have back pain, the instability is causing the back pain, so you should do a fusion for the back pain, Um, and when you look at decompression versus decompression and fusion, um, this paper actually showed that there may be some truth in back pain improvement with a fusion, particularly those patients um, that had more back pain uh, preoperatively. So um, I think the take-home point, uh, when you're looking at the treatment of uh, instabil- uh, degenerative spondylolisthesis and whether or not to do a decompression, really has to do with type of, the type of decompression. And this has changed greatly in the last few years. So um, you'll notice that the uh, Goga-Wallace study had a midline laminectomy. Most decompression these days, particularly at a single level, are done with a unilateral laminotomy, which is an opening in the spine and this undercutting cut across, which is called a unilateral laminotomy, bilateral decompression, where you preserve midline structures. So you're not taking the interspinous ligament, you're not taking the supraspinous ligament, and you're trying to preserve everything possible to prevent worsening of instability. Um, a few people have looked at this, um, this is a great paper actually of the Kaiser, uh, Kaiser Oakland group, um, where they looked at um, matching unilateral laminony bilateral decompressions and matched them with fusions in the setting of people who had a degen spondy and found that the reoperation rate of five years was actually less for the decompression group than the fusion group, um, and they found good success when treating these patients uh, with just a minimally invasive decompression versus a fusion. Um, this paper kind of points towards the difference between open midline laminectomy, which could be a destabilizing procedure versus the unilateral laminotomy bilateral decompression group. And we compared reoperation rates. The open laminectomy had a 16% reoperate versus 5% fusion rates, secondary fusion rates, 12% versus 3%. And um, this is interesting. The slip progression with an open laminectomy, 72% of patients went on the slip while 0% of patients um, in the minimally invasive decompression group went on to slip. So I think our understanding of the treatment of spondylolisthesis has evolved so much as surgeons. Uh, I think if you're reading the literature, you're no longer saying, well, this patient has a grade one spondy, they need a fusion. I think um, people really have to be critical about looking at unstable versus stable degenerative spondylolisthesis and understand that a minimally invasive decompression may be okay if it's a stable degenerative spondylolisthesis. If you're gonna do an open midline decompression, there is about a 30% revision rate. Um, there are some uh, predictors for developing instability that we talked about. And I think most importantly, um, my takeaway is that uh, particularly from the Gogowalla study where patients, there's a 30% revision rate even with a stable degenerative spondy, that um, patients who have kyphosis, patients who have dynamic instability, unstable degen spondies, I'm personally as a surgeon still uncomfortable doing a, even a minimally invasive decompression. I do think there's um, value in fusing those patients still, but I, I think certainly we have to be critical about fusing every patient who presents with a degen spondy and really understand the differences uh, between stable versus unstable spondies and uh, what kind of decompression to do. So thank you very much. And how are we doing on time? I think we are right on time. We're at 6.17. Next is going to be my friend Stephen Falowski. We trained at Thomas Jefferson together, and it's always nice seeing his face. I remember when I was at a course with him, I think it was a striker course, 10 years ago, he was talking about uh, spinal cord stimulation. And all the spine surgeons <laughs> in the audience were like, what? And now that field has evolved so much. And I know that Stephen, as a as a functional neurosurgeon, has really helped evolve that field where now it's really a mainstay, um, somewhat of, of spinal uh, fail back syndrome and also um, uh, spinal pathologies that present initially. So he um, is at the Neurosurgical Associates of Lancaster, and he's uh, the executive officer of the board of the American Society of Pain and Neuroscience, um, and is also the secretary of Treasury, treasurer uh, of the executive pain committee of CNS and uh, AANS. So um, Stephen's going to talk to us about the percutaneous approach <laughs> for indirect decompression.
4: Okay, well well thank you very much uh Brian and thank you for that introduction. Um I think you you, you did a great job of of setting the, the framework uh for our presentations tonight and also uh I think some of your opening remarks were spot on in the sense that our, our fields are changing. You know, interventional pain physicians are doing more of these minimally invasive almost surgical type procedures while the surgeons are starting to realize that we need to uh, adapt ourselves to to these minimally invasive uh, procedures and uh, I've always had an interesting perspective on this being that I as a neurosurgeon I was trained in complex spine surgery and training at Jefferson with you you know we did a lot of uh, complex spinal surgery uh, but then I also trained in functional neurosurgery and believed in minimally invasive procedures and spinal cord stimulation uh, so I tend to see patients in a very different light, um, and I, I tend to look at patients in what would be the most minimally invasive way to give them the most efficacy from uh, their their treatment. And I, I think with the field changing the way it is, the data we're gaining on open spinal procedures that show that you know sometimes that is not actually the best route to go, and it has high reoperation rates. And we know that we also can demonstrate even high rates of post-laminectomy syndrome or fail back surgery syndrome. So we have to start looking at these other therapies um, and, and adopting these therapies. We also have to start looking to having relationships with between pain physicians and surgeons and learning how to, to work together. Cause I think for the future, those are gonna be the most successful groups. Um, this is a great slide to open up with looking at the uh, the progression that. The epidemiology of lumbar spinal stenosis that's happening now and it's it's under a rapid growth. And I don't think it's actually under a rapid growth so much as because uh, more people are getting spinal stenosis. I think it's a matter of more people are living longer. We're also obtaining more MR imaging uh, on patients. So, what we're starting to see is the older patients get, the more likely they are to get an MRI and the more likely they are to find spinal stenosis. What's interesting, though, is when you look at these categories, the largest growth is actually happening in the moderate uh, spinal stenosis category. And what's interesting is is that's usually not the category that we view as surgical patients or open surgical patients. Also, with the aging population that's obtaining these MRIs, they're not always surgical candidates. The reason I think it's important to point this out is... Uh, As spine surgeons, one of the things we're always uh, most fearful about is that we're going to lose our patients to the interventional pain physicians who are starting to do procedures that maybe they shouldn't be doing and we're going to lose them for their open surgical approaches. The truth of the matter is there is actually very little overlap with the procedures I'm about to present and open spine surgery. These are the procedures that come into play Either very early on in the progression uh, when the patients are starting to develop symptoms, uh, but have becomes severe enough to uh, warrant open spine surgery, or it's at the end of the spectrum where there's too many medical comorbidities and we don't consider them uh, uh, candidates for spinal surgery. So, where does this fit in? These procedures I'm going to talk about uh, for minimally invasive lumbar decompressions or indirect decompressions. And it, what it does is it bridges that gap between conservative measures that we've always had and then traditional open surgical procedures. And it's gonna fit right there in the middle. Um, and I think it's it's important to realize this is a, a paradigm shift in the way we used to think about things where it's, when as surgeons, I was always trained, if you saw somebody who probably already needed surgery, we were still gonna send them for an epidural steroid injection, but knowing that we were just gonna end up doing the surgery later. Uh, But now there's these uh, approaches that exist in in the middle. So one of the ones I'm going to first open up with is the idea of an indirect decompression. For most surgeons, you're you're familiar with the X-STOP procedure. Uh, Now, what's interesting, though, is that there's many unique features about indirect decompression with the present device that is very different uh, than the X-STOP device. Now, keep in mind, this is a minimally invasive procedure, it's done through a very small incision, through a tube, everything is outside the canal, there is no actual bony removal. This can be done in an ASC or a hospital in an outpatient setting, general anesthesia is not required. Um, And I think that this is important, some dynamics we're going to talk about with when we deploy these devices, that's very different than the surgical approach of XSTOP is. We're not trying to open the space or jack open the space, and we're not trying to create a fusion. Some of the things that we thought about with X-stop or interspinous devices that we've had in the past. This essentially was designed to act as a doorstop or stop uh, extension. So, the typical patient who's a candidate for this is somebody who gets better inflection, gets worse when they stand and try to walk because they're in extension. And if you can block the extension, almost like a doorstopper at one level, you could you could treat these patients. Now, the study that put this together was a five-year study, randomized controlled trial, level one evidence that directly compared X-STOP, which was a standard of care at the time, against this indirect uh, decompression device. There's over 200 patients on each arm. Now, what's interesting is I want to point out is this five-year study, level one evidence was actually all performed by surgeons. So the data that I'm going to show you was this performed under surgeons. The interesting thing, though, is ever since it's been released, uh, about 70 or more than 70% of the implants are actually done now by interventional pain. And some from the databases and the registries that's been done since the market release, the actual uh, effectiveness has held true as the numbers I'm going to show you. But even the side effect profile or the adverse event profile has actually dramatically reduced, um, demonstrating that some of these uh, procedures are well uh, well napped in uh, the interventional pain physician's hands. So we're going to skip right to the the, the primary outcome, which is when they looked at the neuroge- neurogenic claudication questionnaire, Zurich neurogenic claudication, as the primary outpoint. point. Um, and what they showed is is that over 80% of the patients followed out all the way to, to five years met the primary endpoint of having improvement in at least two of the three domains, which meant we treated and treated well their neurogenic claudication. There's also other endpoints that they looked at the need for a reoperation or revision, any type of major complication. Uh, what's interesting is in the five year study, if you needed to have an epidural steroid injection, or a nerve block or anything five years later, even a spinal cord stimulator, you were considered a failure in this study. Um, And now we know that that's not necessarily how we would treat this in real life. We can do open surgical procedures uh, where patients may do very well, but then some small amount of pain may come back. They may get an epidural steroid injection that holds them over. We would never consider that a failure, but in this study to, to look how strict the criteria was, that would have been considered a failure. So what you see here is is that greater than 80% of the patients with this minimally invasive procedure that comes with extremely low risk were meeting the endpoints, even with the the harsh criteria that it had. There's a lot of secondary endpoints that they also looked at, including VAS pain scores and, and the ODI, and what you can see is there's a significant improvement in all these. The magic number that follows through all the way out to five years is this idea of about 80%. 80% of patients will do well with this procedure. In fact, what it showed was that 80% of patients would not need to go on to need further spinal surgery. So this is now when you catch them early enough in the process, they may not now need open surgical uh, procedures. But this also included patients on the other end of the spectrum that were not uh, surgical candidates. Interestingly enough, following that study, they also looked at opioid use, which is something that's uh, obviously very important uh, now with the current landscape we have. Uh, And what they actually showed was that over the five-year period, there was an 85% decrease in the proportion of subjects who were using opioids. Now, I want to make sure that that's actually clear. It was not an 85% reduction in even opioids. It was an 85% reduction in the amount of patients who were using opioids. So imagine that there were 200 patients that were in the arm for the, the, this interspace device, this indirect decompression. 85% of the patients who were on opioids stopped using opioids, and they had an 80% chance of not going on to need further spine surgery. Now, I also want to uh, dive into the idea of percutaneous indirect lumbar decompression, where we can also do a minimally invasive, small decompression that's not considered open, uh, that is obviously uh, very much uh, saving stability for the spine, as Brian talked about the unilateral approach to get a bilateral decompression. This approach of percutaneous indirect lumbar decompression is instead of placing an implant, we can go and actually take out some of the hypertrophy, the ligamentum, uh, flavum, take off just a small amount of bone. Uh, and it's done through a minimally invasive approach done usually by interventional pain physicians. And interestingly enough, this is also supported by some significant level one evidence data. Uh, Here, this was a two-year study, level one evidence, demonstrating improvements in the ODI of greater than 70% uh, for these patients. And it looks at all the different uh, comorbidities within the spine from foraminal stenosis, lateral recess stenosis, central stenosis, facet hypertrophy. Uh, And it was true for treating patients uh, across the board. there was also followed up with other studies uh, looking about its proven efficacy with decrease in VAS pain scores, improvement in ODI. On the right side of the screen here, you see a functional improvement. Uh, This was done out of the Cleveland Clinic, where they also looked at this procedure and showed that they could increase standing time by seven times the amount and increase your walking distance by 16 times the amount. Now, for those who treat neurogenic claudication and know the reasons we do these open surgical procedures were decompression sent, uh, secondary to the stenosis the inability uh, to walk long distances the, the, because you're having back pain, leg heaviness. This is the significant improvement you can have just by doing a minimally invasive decompression which is where it's just taking out small amounts of the ligamentum flavum. Also what it actually showed was there was a uh, Extremely favorable safety profile with this performed by the interventional pain physicians, where the actual uh, rate of complication was no different than that of an epidural steroid injection. So these procedures, now that showing two-year efficacy uh, with these minimally invasive uh, outpatient procedures, now also have a safety profile that's equivalent to an epidural steroid injection. Uh, so I think these are this is signs that the the times have changed. Uh, for what we can offer uh, for for these patients. These are safe, effective procedures. I think as surgeons, we have to start to learn to work and have relationships with interventional pain physicians and stop looking, you know, we can't look at it as we're going to lose our patients. We can't look at it as if it's, uh, you know, they're stepping on our toes, that there's going to be complications that their interventional pain is not going to be able to take care of because the truth of the matter is we're seeing from the data uh, that these are truly safe procedures that are effective, that are, are very well done in interventional pain physicians' hands, and it's where we overlap. I can tell you, as a functional neurosurgeon, I also do these two procedures, and I also do open surgical procedures, and I also do spinal cord stimulation, and I'm able to bridge that gap. And I realize that I think that's going to be the approach for the f- future for all these patients, uh, and we have to realize to have those relationships uh, with the. Physicians. So at this point, I'm going to pass it back to you, Brian, to introduce our next speaker. Thank you.
2: You are as you. perfect as I remember you. <laughs> Perfectly on time, exactly 6:30, <laughs> 6:31. 630, Thanks so much. <laughs> no uh, next, we're going to have Dr. Vipul uh, Mongol talking about minimally invasive spinal fusion approaches. Um, he's at the National Spine and Pain Centers uh, in Waldorf, Maryland. He's the president of the uh, Maryland Virginia Pain Society. Um, go ahead and take it away.
5: All right, thanks, Brian. Um, so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm kind of the low man on the total pole. Brian and uh, uh, you know Steve, they're, they're surgeons, and I'm an anesthesiologist pain doctor. Just give you a little background. Uh, I run the uh, high acuity implantable program at National Spine and Pain and and business development and our the whole the whole uh, concept of anterior pain physicians or, or pain physicians in general are changing like uh, these guys have alluded to as far as what we can do and what we can do more. And so, you know, this is a fairly newer thing. It's probably more controversial than, um, you know, the stuff that's been presented tonight. And, you know, sometimes building controversy is not a bad thing because, you know what, I mean, who would have thought an interventional pain physician would have done doing SI joint fusions over a year ago. And um, so everything is changing. Uh, in, in, in our world, and I think we are, you know, blurring the lines between what we can do compared to what things that Brian and Steven can do, and so, um, and that's, and I, and I think they're right that we got to be able to, um, you know, do these things together. So, so just to give you an idea on on, on what uh, minimally invasive lumbar decompression of interspinous fusion that uh, that are available now are it's a it's an interspinous fixation device that um, actually uh, uh, creates fusion. And so the idea is we were able to combine percutaneous uh, laminar decompression at the same time with um, a spacer like um, Superion has. And so, you know, the patient identification involved in the same, is very similar profile. It's, you know, these spacers are indicated for bar disc degenerations, just give you FYI. Um, but I think the secondary diagnosis is very important that they need to have lumbar spinal stenosis. And they typically have the, the conditions that have been talked about as for the percent hypertrophy, ligament, the flame And so limitations that sometimes we've noticed are procontinuous, uh, with mild and superion is, you know, I think we can help solve these things and make this, uh, more mainstream and something maybe that we can be, uh, better done in the future. So, um. I'm trying to go to the next slide, Michelle. You can go to the next slide for me. So, yeah, I mean, we've been through this many times. and You guys all know about lumbar spinal stenosis. You know about lumbar degenerative disc disease. You know the compression of the spinal cord occurs typically from uh, many different aspects. It's from central canal stenosis. It's going to be, uh, you know, uh, ligament of flame hypertrophy, foraminal stenosis. You're going to have, uh facet. You, you know, all of those things that are causing these symptoms and lumbar degenerative disc disease and spinal that These guys have mentioned as, um, as often. So, if you go to the next slide, me show. So, I mean, everyone's seen the uh, images that these guys presented, where you, where you see the central canal stenosis, and if you see, I don't have the ax view here in front, front of me, but it'll show you that they also have percent hypertrophy and foraminal stenosis, and so. You know, is there something more that we can do? And this is kind of what we've been exploring, and I've been doing in the last over the last six months. And I think this is where you're going to find. what I'm going to show you a little bit more involved in what we are doing. And so, if uh, you go to the next slide for me, this is the axe view again, showing just showing the severe central canal stenosis. You know, you're having the lateral recess stenosis as well, and a percent hypertrophy. Um, and you guys should be pretty aware of. Causes lumbar spinal stenosis, and we're we're seeing this time and time again. And the question is, what can we do besides just those uh, things? Treatments options available. So the idea is maybe we can put this spacer in that actually causes fixation, right? So we know the percutaneous approach where you're just doing a rongeur that you use mops, you're just taking the ligament play out, and maybe that's not enough, right? Maybe that symptoms are temporary, and then maybe we know with the superior spacer that it's not actual fixation. A spacer. It's actually uh, two, two uh, Y panels basically sitting on the spine's process. But we maybe need a fixation and maybe we can combine those two procedures. And that's what this these devices, I think, are interspine spacers are coming around to. Um, if you go to the next slide for me. So, what we're doing is creating a spinal spacer that's going to actually rest between the two spine's processes. It's actually going to fixate to the spine process using. Uh, a fixation claw type thing that's on top of the spacers. I'm gonna show you a picture of it also. I think the advantage of it is oh, it's gonna uh, maintain the pyramidal height, it's gonna offload the sets, so you have maybe a be- you're gonna have a better uh, result as improving back pain as well. Um, we're gonna deposit bone graft uh, on the posterior lateral on lambda to help promote bony fusion between the two spots. vertebra. Now the idea is can we is we want to do this all in, in a minimal invasive way. Go on, next slide for me. Is is to show you that you know I've been doing these procedures under uh sedation anesthesia in the ASC, and so uh, with a less than two inch incision, and so with a single. Or what the idea is, we identify our interlaminar space, and if you guys are used to doing uh spinal cord stimulator implants, you know you're just cutting down to the fascial level. Well, then you go a little bit further, you're going to see the spinal process, and these is this is the world that us pain physicians aren't used to going into, and so. We're going to dissect the spinous process. We're going to dissect around the spinous process to create um, a, a playing field for the spinous uh, spacer to sit. And then we're going to do an interspinous ligament dissection. We're going to take that part of the ligament out. And then we're going to actually do a decompression with using a kerosene and taking some of that posterior bony elements out and taking the ligament, the out as well to um, uh, help decompress. And then we'll put the spine spacer. So as you can see may This is a, a combination of those two things that uh, Stephen has mentioned as far as doing the mild and superion. Where we're actually going to do the decompression as, and a, maybe a more of it, uh, taking more of the bone away, taking more of the ligament away. And then we're going to put the spinal spacer in as well. And then we're going to actually fixate it, which is different from the superion device. Um, and then we're going to deposit bone graft to help promote uh, bone fusion. So this is an example of one um, they've been using. So if you can pay attention to the Middle part of it is this is what the space looks like. If you notice the claws that are coming out of it, that's what's gonna to fixate to the spinous process. In the middle of it is a barrel, essentially, an empty barrel, we're depositing bone graft in there to help promote bony growth. And so this is the the after we do decompression with a percutaneous – with a kerosene, we're gonna put this deposit this uh device in between the spinous processes. If you go to the next slide for me. So we do the decompression, you can see, we isolated the spinous processes and did a dissection around the lateral to the spinous process to create room for the spacer. And after we did uh, the decompression, then we put the spacer in and, and you're putting that in there. So and you can see the barrel size was distracting uh, the two spines processes together. So we're me- we're me- we actually measure uh, how much distraction is needed and we put the spacer in in between. And those claws are going to, what they're going to do is they're going to end up fixating to the splash process. We're going to bring, cinch those two things together, and it's going to, But uh, uh, now, this incision is, you know, typically in my uh, my about two inches for one level uh, uh, fusion. And so it's kind of, I think, of the bridge between what we can do and what some of the surgeons can do. You go to the next slide for me. Again, this is very new. This is X-ray image, although it's kind of skewed the way it's looking, but if you just look at an X-ray image of it, uh, you can see the claws in between the spinous processes, and there's a lateral view of it as well, showing how it sits um, between the spinous process. And so I just want to give you this as an example of a patient I did, actually four or five months ago. The idea of this is also we can do adjacent segments stabilization that maybe doesn't involve uh, re-fusion, re the screws. I mean, the patients, I think there's a candidate is for elderly, right? I mean, we don't want to take a maybe an 80 year old female's osteoporotic who maybe have comorbidities, like Brian said, that maybe doesn't want a whole pedicle screw fusion. And so, you know, these are the things that we can stabilize them and even be improve their outcomes for five years. This is the um, this maybe the approach. In my mind, the the uh, the disadvantage is there's no data on this stuff. It's not as well studied as the other stuff. And so that's what's coming down the pipeline. And I think I think it's a very exciting time to come in because now. The fact that, um, you know, whether some of our surgeons like it or not, and a lot of them are not, is that we're doing uh, lumbar fusions. And so with the fixation, depositing bone graft, doing with decompression, doing this under 30 minutes, this becomes an outpatient procedure, something that is more possible for some of our elderly stenotic patients, lumbar degenerative disc disease patients, even with spondylolisthesis, I would say stable spondy. I will say unstable sponding, I'll still be sending I will still send it out to the surgeon, but this is a this is a potential option or a tool in our arsenal that interventional pain physicians uh could be doing as well. And so um again the uh it needs to be studied. We need we need five year data and um you know, and um so but uh, again, been doing it for six months, the patients have been doing great anecdotally. Again, I don't have uh data to uh show it, but we will soon. And so I think that's the next step of the process. Um, next slide, for me. So again, this, this advanced surgical procedure, the incision size is a little bit bigger. The other thing, you know, uh, if their interventional pain physicians on the call, you guys know that this is actually a malpractice increase. We're not uh, our current malpractice does not accommodate this, but when you're adding a lump, when you're adding a lumbar fusion to it, just know that malpractice is going to be increased as part of this, and uh, rightfully so in my mind. But it's not, it's very posterior, you're not, um, uh, you're not in the interlaminar space, you're not, uh, this is a thing that's easily teachable, and a lot of people are are starting to adopt this, and there are several devices out there now, where pain physicians are entering the world of doing that, I think is going to be the next couple years, you're going to see it become very mainstream, as what pain physicians can do uh, for our patients. Next slide. so i think that ends mine i think i'm exactly 12 minutes uh brian i think you're gonna hand it off to Romano.
2: thanks so much and moving right along we're gonna go to my favorite pain management slash anesthesia slash uh vertiflex monster ramo naidu <laughs> uh ramo um uh, was at UCSF and came to cow spine has uh, really changed, I think, the way that um, we certainly look at how to treat spinal pathologies. Uh, Ramo goes by the uh, edict of you have no conflicts of interest if you can solve for everyone. So uh, take it away, Ramo.
6: <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Um, so you started off this whole presentation, Brian, talking about the, the, the adage that we're similar to open cardiac surgery versus interventional cardiology. And, and so far, these three talks you've heard sort of have laid down the battlefront between uh, spine surgeons and, and pain physicians, interventional pain physicians. My talk is going to be about when to refer to pain management and really describe how we can really collaborate to help you as surgeons be better and, and be better for your patients. So um, I I did anesthesia at UCSF, as you mentioned, for six years. I no longer, I've shifted over entirely to interventional pain management, but I have a love and a passion for anesthesiology. So much of what you're going to hear today uh, is going to be about perioperative management. And this is really a teaser for what you're going to hear next week at our PSPS webinar, where Drs. Ha, Carol, uh, Prasad, Uh, And Otastad will talk about the perioperative management specific to spine surgery. So this is just a teaser or a taste. Next slide, which I will control here. All right. So I want us all to to think about, um, as we get this delay, um, a patient um, in a graphical format. So on the y-axis is this patient's quality of life. And on the x-axis, is their age in years, and so uh, this patient was born, let's just say, in 1960, and and they really you know were born healthy and were doing well, and then around the age of 20, maybe they had a fall off their ladder, broke their forearm, casted, had some impairment with certain activities of dexterity, but otherwise were fairly fine. They were ambulating, they were able to do all of their activities. Then age 37, motorcycle accident, tib fib fracture, pretty big deal, couldn't walk, quality of life significantly uh, reduced rehabilitation, chronic pain, um, and then around the age of, let's just say 55, started to have some back pain, right? And the question is, was it related to trauma? Was it related to degeneration? Uh, but at some point that that pain became worse, 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 um, after conservative therapies failed and they see a spine surgeon. Um, this patient has an unstable grade one spondy. Uh, they are a candidate uh, for a decompression uh, and, and plus a fusion, let's just say, for this example. And, and really, there are a lot of scenarios that can happen in this moment in time, this moment in time when we have this patient under surgery. Of course, what we all hope for and what we expect is that patient does better, the green bar, right? They they have significant improvements in their function, their quality of life improves significantly, and they go on to leave, lead a very fruitful life. In fact, one that's better than where they were when they were 45 years old. And that's the ultimate goal of, of surgery, right? A chance to cut is a chance to cure. You know, maybe we can make people better by what we do. Of course, what we want to avoid is the red line, right? The patient who actually dies on the operating room table or doesn't do well three days later. Um, And you might think, well, that doesn't really happen these days. And and that's because of what we've done in the last seven years with anesthesia and, of course, with surgery itself. So if you go back to the 1950s, we had an anesthesia mortality rate in the single percentage points. Uh, you'll, You'll find some centers where the anesthesia mortality rate in the 1950s was 13%. Obviously, you can't probably think about a time when you've had a non-emergent, non-traumatic surgical death on the OR table, and that is because of how good of a job we've done in our education, our technology, and everything we've been able to do perioperatively. So we've really avoided the red line issue. Uh, But what about this patient in orange? The patient who goes to the surgery and is kind of right back where they were at their baseline before the surgery, Uh, they're not necessarily bad, but they're not great, and they continue to kind of linger, and maybe they see the surgeon again, then they maybe see the primary, and they just don't seem to improve and years go by, and finally they succumb uh, to whatever causes. Now, you might look at this patient and say, well, they lived 89. I mean, that's surpassing the average life expectancy of an American these days in 2020. But look at the area under the curve in this patient, and that's really the overall quality of life for that patient. It's really not that great. So. The question we have is, are there things we can do to predict who's gonna do poorly and
3: who's not? We'll get
6: to the next slide here. Here we go, perfect. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, can we predict who's gonna do well and who's not? And the answer is yes. Over the last 30 or 40 years, a number of researchers from all over the world have looked at risk factors for who's gonna develop chronic pain after surgery in general, not specific to spine, but overall. And we know that the more severe their preoperative pain is, uh, the higher the risk. We know that the surgical technique, a nerve sparing technique can, can improve outcomes. Infection prevention, of course, can improve outcomes. Our anesthesia technique, whether we use regional anesthesia, ketamine, other adjuvants, this will be discussed next week. The pain psychology or psychology in general, the severity of their anxiety, uh, their depression, uh, post-traumatic stress, and catastrophization, all topics that Dr. Prasad will talk about, and how these all interplay with a patient's age, their genetics, and spit out whether a patient succeeds and does well, or a patient goes on to have chronic pain. So as we go on to the next several years, we're going to start to address these modifiable risk factors with us clinically, but also I think you're going to see some proteomic uh, te- technologies that might actually adjust The genomes of certain individuals who may be more predisposed to the development of chronic pain after trauma or surgery.
3: Sorry with this delay here
6: on the uh, slide change it's going to happen. So it's time to stop calling chronic pain after spine surgery failed back surgical syndrome. Now this term was developed in 1993 by Dirksen Follett to describe those individuals who unfortunately didn't fare well. But if we really think about post surgical pain for all the different types of surgeries out there. And these are just some examples. As you can see, it's quite common, right? So if you look at amputation, 30 to 80% of individuals are going to have chronic pain after that surgery, and we're not calling it failed amputation syndrome. Uh, 30 to 50% of patients after um, a sternotomy, right? We're not calling it failed sternotomy syndrome, because frankly, the goals are met for a lot of these surgeries, whether that's to do uh, cardiac bypass and open heart surgery or a thoracotomy to remove infected or cancerous lung, those objectives are met. And yet we seem to say, oh, well, you got some chronic pain and that's expected. But here we are with the spine patient saying, well, you know, weren't you supposed to help me? Is this a failure because you didn't do the right thing? And it's really only a failure if you're doing the wrong thing, right? If you're not identifying a pain generator, if you're, if you're committing spine crime, if you're Dr. Death yeah, those cases are out there, but they're extremely rare. Uh, We do have great surgeons out there. We have people doing the right thing. But unfortunately, just because of all of those risk factors I mentioned, they can go on to develop chronic pain after surgery. So some of the terms we really should be using, and I think many of us are already using, are post-laminectomy pain syndrome or post-lumbar fusion pain syndrome, uh, things along these lines to describe what's going to happen. And in our next iteration of the International Classification of Diseases, the ICD-11, there will be an ICD-11 code for persistent post-surgical pain, which does not exist in ICD-10 currently. We can wait for the eloquist to metabolize while the the slide changes. Um, So what percentage of patients after spine surgery develop chronic pain after surgery? And you you hear different estimates depending on which papers you read. And I just highlight three papers here uh, in the last decade. Uh, Simon Thompson, I think many of us know from the UK, uh, wrote his paper in, in 2013, a retrospective review in which he said the ins, or the prevalence, excuse me, was 10 to 40%. Uh, a paper out of Brazil in 2015 did a retrospective review in their cohort, not a large cohort, around 20 patients, so a small number, but nonetheless, they identified 60% prevalence there. And then there was a large Japanese survey performed in 2017, uh, hundreds of patients in which they found a prevalence around 20.6%. So just depending on what you're reading, uh, we're estimating around 20% with some variability depending on your region, your methods, et cetera. So it is a problem, it is something that's out there um, and it's something that hopefully we can start to modify as we start setting it more. Michelle, can you hit next slide? I'm I'm having difficulties here. Thanks. Why do patients develop chronic pain after spine surgery? There are a lot of reasons, and really I like to put it into two buckets. Uh, The first bucket are intrinsic factors. So, some of the issues that may come up intrinsically, like infection, instability, development of a hematoma, redistribution of forces to other pain generators like the facets or the sacroiliac joints, a pseudomeningosil, adhesions and fibrosis in the epidural space, nerve injury from the direct trauma, muscle spasm, recurrent disc prolapse, uh, or arachnoiditis. The extrinsic factors are really sort of the, the modifiable things uh, that hopefully we can identify preoperatively and either not operate or, or do the right thing. So if it's the wrong diagnosis or wrong pain generator, you know, we do have patients sometimes who come back and say the surgery didn't do anything for my pain because it's something else. It's the sacroiliac joints or, or, or some other pain generator. Or if patients have a neuropathic disorder or psychological disorder these are hopefully the things that we can identify preoperatively so you don't end up with a post-surgical disaster. And of course, there are other factors as well. Next
3: slide. Now, what steps
6: do we take after we confront our patient after surgery? We're the surgeon and we've ruled out intrinsic factors. We've ruled out infection. We've ruled out instability. We look at our imaging and we would say everything looks perfect you know i don't know what else to say what are what are things that we can do and and often it's you know good luck you know i don't know what else to do i've done everything i could have done uh maybe sometimes we consider a revision depending on what is found or we may consider a second opinion go see another surgeon or the patient themselves goes and sees another surgeon uh, that other surgeon may just say you know go back to conservative care maybe they do a revision or maybe they just end up saying good luck you know i don't know what else to do for you can also say go to your primary care provider and you know as we all know in the last 10 years here we've seen our opioid epidemic swell to to ridiculous proportions and we've combated that to some degree over the last three years but nonetheless what else do PCPs really have in the armamentarium all they have are really medications and so that's why they've had to lean on opioids for, for many of these patients or you could send to an interventional pain physician and of course as Dr. Sue and Dr. Pulaski were talking about we've seen a huge growth in spinal cord stimulation over the last 10 years for these individuals, but not all pain physicians and and specifically not all interventional pain physicians do neuromodulation, nor do they do minimally invasive spine procedures. So it's important to know your ecosystem and to know who's doing what and try to find out what are the best evidence-based procedures that could potentially help your patients in a safe manner. Next slide. So multidisciplinary, Multidisciplinary care has been something that's been around since the 1960s from John Bonica at the University of Washington. Uh, It was his idea to bring everybody under one roof from different uh, expertise areas such as rehabilitation, pharmacology, uh, regional anesthesia, interventional pain, complementary and integrative medicine, including Eastern approaches to care, and then, of course, pain psychology. And while we think of these care models primarily in academic centers, Even those of us in in private practice can consider these models, albeit it's done in piecemeal. So for our practice, Dr. Sue and I work in Marin County, north of San Francisco. I know all of the individuals in our area that can provide these services, and that's how we collaborate and network and connect. So if I know patients need that pain psychology help, I have a few people that I refer out to. Uh, We have our own physical therapy group. Uh, We certainly know a lot of complementary integrative approaches to our care around the San Francisco area. And so it's very nice to consider this uh, in collaboration uh, with your patients and your surgeons depending on where you practice. Next slide. Um, This group in 2019, the Getsinzi group in Europe, have looked at a multidisciplinary model to improve outcomes and that's something they're studying here in the next few years. So here is the basically the final slide of the entire deck. What is the practical plan for the management of the surgical spine patient? And this was really meant to have animations, but as you can see, our animation technology is quite poor tonight. Uh, But nonetheless, I'll try to walk you through this. Um, If you go through the purple arrows, you take a patient who's going into that box of spine surgery, you really have three outcomes, as we've already alluded to. You have your masters, you know, majority of your patients are gonna do great. You know, Dr. Sue, Dr. Schilling for my practice, they do a phenomenal job. Uh, It's rare for me to see any patients do poorly because they're really good at patient selection and their technical skills are great. So majority of their patients are, are masters, they're flying through. But of course, as we all know, we have our patients who are sort of the stay afters, right? The ones you expect to discharge in post that day two or three, but they're staying till day five or seven because of chronic pain or or severe acute pain or focal neurologic deficits that are transient, but they're keeping them in the hospital. And then, of course, you have the disasters, the patients who are just there, they're they're miserable, they're terrible, they're having significant comorbidity issues. um, And these are the patients often that end up going to interventional pain. And the huge question for all of us is, Can we identify those patients in advance so we can modify those factors or even say to ourselves, maybe we shouldn't operate on them because we know the outcome might be poor. So on the left-hand side in the white writing are some of the bullet points or or referral criteria that I have for our hospital for when they should consult a pain physician like myself. So a patient who has significant opioid tolerance, a patient who is a candidate for advanced infusions like ketamine or lidocaine, uh, if they're a candidate for interventional or regional anesthesia. If they have a history of substance abuse and pain or they have a history of psychological uh, disorders or conditions that predispose them to chronic pain like ptsd or anxiety or catastrophization and dr basad like i said we'll go through that next week and look i'm not i'm not everything to everyone there are things that i'm good at and there are things i'm not great at and so if i have a patient who needs pain psychology or addictionology i get them involved preoperatively and i want those individuals to follow the patients through their perioperative course and to see them afterwards. So it's it's very useful to have knowledge of who's doing what in your community. Our goal here is to get the green box, right? To reduce and eliminate opioids, to reduce healthcare utilization. This is what your hospital systems want. This is what your bundles want. This is what we're aiming for. If we don't start looking at what we can do to prevent this preoperatively or how to manage it postoperatively, we're gonna have the red box, the patients who continue to use opioids, who increase healthcare utilization, we have psychological comorbidities, impaired function, and of course, patient dissatisfaction, which of course will come back to you. And that's really what our future is holding is what is our patient satisfaction like? What are our metrics like? And can we do things to improve those outcomes? Next slide. So really, the answer to the original question is, you know, if you if you know that you're going to have those preoperative disasters or staffers, get them to pain management, help them modify some of those modifiable risk factors. And at the 6- or 12-week mark or somewhere in between, if you can start to smell or sense that you have patients who are going to need some help, get them involved early on so that we can intervene earlier. The longer we wait, the harder it is for us to reverse those poor outcomes. So, Brian, I'm going to pitch it back to you. Uh, I appreciate the uh, the time.
2: Okay. So, I guess we're going to get the entire panel up everyone show your faces so i will uh i will kick this off with just a a few questions um and then we'll see if we get any questions through the chat box um and we can just kind of go uh go down the row in terms of talk so so i have a question for steven um about the vertiflex and about the mild that you presented I always tell patients that come to me that say, well, so-and-so surgeon says you shouldn't have a disc replacement. And I say, well, does that surgeon do disc replacements? And sometimes the answer is (laughs) no. Well, of course you shouldn't have one because they don't do them. (laughs) Um, And I think uh, often for things that we offer patients, the reason we're skewed towards that way is because that's within our wheelhouse. It's in our toolbox is exceedingly unusual for a surgeon these days to be able to do the mild, the vertiflex, the X-stop, you know, a lateral fusion, a lift, a T lift, whatever if you want to do, you have it all. So my question to you is, you have a patient with L4, L5, moderate lateral recess stenosis, they have neurogenic claudication, a little bit of a dick, it's one or two level disease. It's a patient who's reasonably healthy um gets relief with uh sitting down forward flexion. You have all these tools in your tool chest the 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 minimally invasive decompression that's a forty five minute one hour surgery that look as a surgeon, I say is the gold standard some say may say it's not um you have the vertiflex you can offer you can you can offer the mild so as a as a physician who offers all of those things. What does that conversation look like when you talk to the patient about where you steer them uh, in terms of surgical treatment? yeah, absolutely and that's a great question because the the
4: more things you put in your wheelhouse the the harder it is sometimes to to choose between them um, I think the one of the best ways I can frame my answer right from the beginning is we have to change our mindset that as when we were trained in spine surgery, you know the idea was that was the permanent fix. We were taking on the risk and potential comorbidities for the patient for this idea of the best outcome with a permanent fix. Um, But when we start looking at these other procedures like, you know, uh, the VertiFlex or the lumbar interspace device mild, we have to remember that these procedures have an extremely safe profile. And they're minimally invasive these patients go home after sometimes 15 to 30 minute procedures with very minimal recovery time uh, and essentially you know when we're a spine surgeons we look at this as some of the lowest risk procedures you can possibly have so it's changing our mindset that so the worst case scenario is if i do something like a a vertiflex or a lumbar interspace device and you know it has an 85 80 chance of preventing you from needing further intervention If you fall into that 20%, that's not that big, you know, that's not that bad. So, you know, we never actually second guess sending patients for epidural steroid injections. So I always start off when I see a patient thinking of what's the most minimally invasive uh, tool I have in my box uh, that has the best chance of succeeding. And Sometimes it doesn't fall into vertiflex or Mild or, or these other procedures. It goes right to open spine surgery uh, for all the exact reasons you pointed out uh, in the beginning. Uh, but that's how I, I look at it is I change my mindset into things so that I know that it, it's not so bad if you fail some of these really percutaneous, minimally invasive procedures. But it gives you a shot at, at actually having success without taking the comorbidity risk on so I always think of what's the most minimal I can do first.
2: And would you say that a Vertiflex is less invasive than a laminotomy? Uh, yes, absolutely. So, uh, I think it's
4: very tissue sparing. I mean, you don't go through muscle. Uh, You actually maintain the, the ligaments
2: intact as well. There's no bony removal.
4: So.
2: so it almost sounds like as a surgeon, your primary go-to in that patient with L4-5 lateral recess stenosis with relief if they said, well, Doc, what would you do if you were me? It sounds like you're offering them VertiFlex instead of a decompression.
4: Correct. Yeah. If Unless, unless I think their stenosis is quite severe, um, which I feel like those are the patients who, you know, over time are going to fail these devices. So I would try to give them a more definitive treatment such as a decompression then.
2: Okay. And, and do you feel at five years with that VertiFlex, because there's continued motion, you know, there's studies that show no difference in cross-sectional area despite improvement mm-hmm. in clinical symptoms. Because there's that persistent motion, um, have post-market studies been done to show that that continued motion leads to increasing stenosis and phlegal hypertrophy?
4: Um, actually, in, their, in the five-year study for them, they, they followed, like, the, the sagittal balance of the spine. Uh, and they followed the progression. Uh, And what they actually showed was there was no change in sagittal balance. So no no chance of even adjacent level disease uh, and sagittal balance was maintained. Uh, And what they actually showed uh, somewhat anecdotally was that you actually slow down the progression at that level of disease. Now, the problem is we did follow it five years, but they didn't follow it farther than five years.
2: Right. Okay, does anybody else on the panel, just sticking to kind of the spend a few more minutes on the percutaneous approaches for um, mild or vertiflex uh, have commentary on your experience in using it well i'll jump in real quick uh,
7: just to comment on that decision-making process um, uh definitely enjoyed all your talks uh, they're all great and they all uh, primarily focus in on the issues related to the pathology and trying to uh, uh, get the patient to feel uh, better as the least invasive possible. Um, one of the things that I haven't heard, and I'd just like to bring up, it was a bit of a surprise to me, but made me rethink how I approach this as well, is many times patients come to me already having seen the surgeon surgeon probably has already offered something and they say, I just don't want to do it. I just don't want to do it. Um, and sometimes, even if I think they need to, I had one particular case where I told the guy, I said, you really need to get your surgery done. Uh, I think that's what's going to offer you benefit. And I really want you to uh, pursue that. And he was so adamant that he didn't want to say, I, I just need to try everything ahead of time. So I said, fine. Let's, um, if, you know, if you're going to be that adamant about it, let's go ahead and do it. I'm going to tell you that, um, uh, the amount of material I'm taking off with the mild procedure is going to be small. I need, I think you need a lot more, but let's go ahead and do it. And, um, after we were done, uh, he said, Yeah, I found I got some benefit out of it, but, uh, for what he wanted to accomplish, uh, it wasn't enough. And so a few weeks later, he went in for his, uh, more extensive decompression. I went in with him uh just because I was curious to see how um how easy it was to see how much I had done since everything we do in the mild procedure is fluoroscopic. And I tell you I was surprised by how hard I had to look to look for that uh little tiny uh resection of lamina and the little bit of work I had done. And he did quite well after his full um uh decompression. But I think having done the procedure it got him in a better position to accept uh the uh sort of a slightly larger uh, surgical procedure, and he did well with it. So sometimes um, you need to make sure that patients have what they need to get themselves to move forward, and sometimes I use it in that regard as well. Uh, Mike, well, so so tell me on these about things. your uh, opinion on VertiFlex,
8: Dr. O. Yeah, so my, my thoughts on some of these devices is, is that... You mentioned some of the cost effectiveness at the beginning. So I think that we do need more cost effectiveness uh, data on on these kinds of devices. And I agree that they're much less invasive than the standard open or even minimally invasive decompressions. uh, But that doesn't necessarily make them cost effective. And I think that's going to be incumbent on us. I don't think the industry is going to really do a lot of those studies, So especially doctors like Dr. Fileski philosophy that does both it's going to be incumbent on on some of us on this call as well as uh, in the audience tonight to do some of those uh, studies to look at really cost effectiveness also i think that uh, some of the issues that uh, the audience uh, are, are going to ask about is really you know the coding and so the the coding of these kind of procedures that there's sometimes overlap between open procedures and these minimally invasive and where 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 coding might not be a used appropriately and so that that could be uh, an issue that comes up with some of these devices. But my opinion on Vertiflex and mild is I agree I think that they they, prob- they do fit a role in the spectrum of how we treat these patients but, uh, but I do think that that uh, if we're going to continue with these uh, devices that we really have to put a little bit more pressure on the companies. We have to put more pressure on ourselves to do some of the follow-up studies that showed long-term effectiveness and cost-effectiveness.
2: David Lee had his uh, hand up. I don't know if you want to make a comment, David. Yeah, I was going to um, actually build upon what Dr. Poray said, and um, in my own practice,
9: uh, you know, where I have an orthospine, spine, um, just like with uh, uh, Dr. NATO and the, you know yourself, uh, Dr. Sue. Um, I work pretty closely with them. And so uh, before I, I even began to uh, perform these procedures on a more consistent basis, I approached my orthopedic spine surgeon say, hey, you know, um, this is something that I'm, I'm, I'm particularly, you know, passionate about. Um, for a lot of the reasons that you guys have presented today, you know, th- this is the reason and the evidence behind it. Um, and I think for, uh, I know there's a lot of surgeons on the on the webinar, but also for the pain doctors, I think we need to be um, honest with ourselves and, and you know, we sometimes get a bad rap for doing things uh, prematurely, but um, you know, a lot of it is in good faith, but we wanna make sure that we're doing, you know, good evidence-based medicine. So I think if we one of the f- first and foremost important things is that having that good relationship with an orthopedic spine surgeon is integral to make all of these things work and to uh, allow for the algorithm to uh, be seamless. Um, one of the things that, in in, a, in that same you know, in that same uh, uh, tone, one of the things that I, when I'm presenting this to patients is I always tell them like, look, uh, doing some of these procedures doesn't preclude you from having surgery. So it, whether it's a, a patient like Dr. Poray was mentioning who was a little bit reticent about moving forward with surgery and just wanted to do the least invasive thing, yeah, that that happens all the time in my office, you know. But but I'm I'm just like Dr. Poray. Sometimes I'm looking at the MRI. I'm looking at examining their symptoms and I'm saying, you know, this is really severe um, spinal stenosis associated with severe neurogenic claudication. You're, you're probably going to need more. Um, But the patient's saying, no, 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 no. You kind of, uh, in a ways, uh, and I hadn't thought about that, but you can kind of introduce them to the idea of doing a little bit more of invasive surgery than just simply epidural injections, uh, which we know from various studies have limited, uh, um, you know, viability in, in the sense that they can be, uh, short, you know, short acting or not, you know, not uh, believing or uh, appreciable amount of pain at all. Um, so, so I think pain doctors have to be kind of, uh, you know, honest with themselves as well, but to, to kind of lead off and tell patients like, look, if you do something like a Vertiflex or a mild, you can still, you know, you know, hypothetically do a, a, you know decompressive surgery or a fusion in the future then I think patients be, start to themselves see the algorithm and say, okay, well, yeah, I, I get where this kind of fits into. Um, I, I will be honest, there has been a couple of patients, in fact, where we did a VertiFlex, and, you know, um, for a patient who was just adamantly against surgical procedures, but eventually did go and have a fusion with the orthopedic spine surgeon that I work for. Um, and and the I was completely transparent with the patient up front and said, look, the chances of this uh, you know, potentially failing is relatively high. They had, you know, um, a spondy and they had a severe spinal stenosis. Um, but but the patient kind of signed off and said, you know, that's the chance I'm willing to take.
2: All right. So uh, questions from the audience. Um, this is actually surrounding interspinous process spacers and the mild. Stephen, if you want to answer these quickly, um, intra-op, post-op antibiotics for mild and interspinous process spacers and also anticoagulation um anticoagulation anticoag- for both of these uh devices.
4: Yeah, good question. I mean I, I treat I treat these the same way I treat like say spinal cord stem or any type of uh implant. So I do um intraoperative antibiotics IV and I usually do about uh 24 hours of post op PO antibiotics. As far as anticoagulants, um I usually stop them before so something like aspirin's 5 days, coumadin I wait till a normal INR. Uh, And then with these procedures, though, I'll usually restart them within 24 hours or after 24 hours.
2: Um, There's another question from the audience, and I'll, you know, you guys on the panel, feel free to raise your hands if you have a response to this. I think this is an interesting one. With a goal of preserving optimal outcomes and prioritizing patient safety, should the interventional pain community have objective testing standards for assessing which physicians possess the necessary skills to safely perform these minimally invasive procedures. I'm assuming vertiflex, mild, interspinous process, fusion, whatever, whatever have you. Um, I think uh, my personal perspective is, you know, obviously with my surgeon colleagues, I wanna make sure that surgeons are held to a standard of performing high quality spine surgery. And when we have a way within our board certification, et cetera, to do that, so, um, anybody have a comment on these? Kind yeah, of- I mean, I, I mean, I, I
5: train, that's pain is a group of 300 providers. So helping training these physicians and doing this stuff, and we monitor safety. I think, I think you have to establish some guidelines. I think, you know, not everyone can do these things and, you know, people have to know their limitations, just, just like everyone does in implant spinal cord simulators. There's only a handful of us that some of us do and some of us don't. And, um, you know, you have to have the basic surgical skills. In my mind, you have to have performed at least five cases, you know, with proctoring and independent and being able to show that you can do them. And so uh, most of these things now require certification by the field mild a mile the class, You require certification. you showed you could do it on a cadaver. Um, and as far as their fixation. For us, this is such a newer thing. It's, it's more involved. Uh, you know, we require and showing that you can do it. I mean, you have to be able to be comfortable dissecting, going on I mean, you have to be control- uh, comfortable doing those things. And I think Friday make up a good point is not everyone can do them. And you have to, everyone has to be properly trained to be able to do it. So, but with that said, I think in a spectrum where I don't think there's any way probably 10 years from now you're going to find pain physicians not being able to treat spinal stenosis, just like. You can, every single one of them, learn epidurals. Um, when things are new introduced, everyone's got to learn it eventually. And fellowships will adopt. And they're doing these things as well. And so um, as far as the pain world, there will be more training coming and things accessible. But yes, I mean, it's, for now, we're reliant on our vendors to provide our training and our, whatever internal practices do, quality metrics on our own, so.
2: I think um, whatever societies. National societies you have may, you know, just let's just we have certificate of added qualification for hand surgery um, and for sports medicine. There, there may be a subcategory of that that, that, that evolves over time. There's another question of the, uh, by the audience. Um, can you speak to scenarios where you remove the VertiFlex? Why would you remove it? Does a surgeon need to do this or can an interventionalist do this? How is it done technically? Is it challenging? Um, I would like to know how reversible it is. Um, I can start this off and y- you guys feel free to chime in. I've taken about 20 vertiflexes out of the 20,000 that Ramo's put in. So it's a failure rate of uh, 0.001%. Um, I was counting them today because I'm going to make a Christmas ornament for Ramo of all the ones I've taken out. Um, and I always tell spine surgeons, you know, when surgeons say, well, I'm always taking out vertiflexes that's because that's the numerator. You don't know the denominator. Just like pain management docs say, spine surgery never works because they're seeing only the failures. They're not seeing the actual successes. Um, So I've had the opportunity to take out um, quite a few of these actually. Um, It is interestingly, when you're converting it to an open laminectomy, um, not that easy to take out in the sense that when I I was taking out X stops, the thing kind of just came out. And I think that's because you take down the interspinous ligament but this thing actually goes underneath, gets tucked in. Um, and so it's, uh, it's not, I don't wanna say a challenge to get out, but you know I do have to dissect out the interspinous ligament, et cetera. And it actually doesn't matter because I'm doing a decompression anyway. Um, it does protrude quite a bit from the midline. Sometimes it does block you from doing a unilateral laminotomy because of the retractor actually. Um, that is one thing I've found. The other thing I've found is surprisingly, I've seen some epidural scarring um, so when I get in there in a couple of cases, not all of them, it almost looks like it's a, it's a revision in the case. And I don't know if that's because of kind of the tenting of the flavum. Um, I think the interventionalists can speak about removing them. I think most of the time surgeons are doing it because you're removing it because of persistent stenosis. And so you have to do a decompression along with the removal. So I think most mostly surgeons are removing the device. Um, does anyone else on the panel have any comment on... Device removal, et cetera. Ramo?
6: Yeah, I can speak to that. So, I mean, as, as Stephen pointed out from the ID study, 20% of patients with Vertiflex are, are not going to do well. Um, a grand majority of those patients are just going to live with their implants and not really mind it. Um, but some of those patients go on to see Dr. Sue in our practice and, and have a decompression. And some of those patients may ask me to, to remove. Among my 20,000, no, I'm joking. Um, among the number of patients I've had, I don't know my total number but i've taken out two um over the last three years and really as brian alluded to it's really about the tissue dissection making sure you have a visual access to the molly bolts you can try to do it fluoroscopically that's fine i just tend to find that takes more time i'd rather just dissect the tissue out get right to it drop the driver in unscrew it and pull it out Um, for the surgeons who are going to go on to do a decompression i mean they're going to get there anyway and they can pop it out they don't need any of the instrumentation that's associated with the Uh, but for us as interventionalists, we use the driver, unscrew it, and then you can use a rongeur or, or a Kelly and just pull it out.
2: Um, so I'm going to move on, actually, to uh and ask him a question about the inner body, um, the inner spinous process uh, device for fusion. And I know a lot of my spine surgeon colleagues are having an angina. And if they saw this they would say oh my god what is happening (laughs) i have a couple of practical questions um typically we're doing fusions for one of a few different reasons but the point of my talk it's usually for dynamic instability um there's a biomechanical force on the spine you're trying to fix it in place um in our world we have quite a few spinous process plating devices um i happen to use one from Nuvasive. Uh, it's a clamp that goes across the spinous process imparts stability. Um, the biomechanical studies and the company itself um, even, they do not advocate its usage without an inner body device or something else to help stabilize the anterior column of the spine. So I'm interested in whether or not, you know, you think that device itself is enough to lead to a fusion when traditionally, even when we put in bilateral pedicle screws and bur up the transverse processes and the facets, there's up to a 30, 40% non-union rate sometimes with the use of allograft, even when you're putting in four pedicle screws, which is more rigid than, than a kind of interspinous process clamp. Um, what's your thought on the biomechanical rigidity of that and really the ability for it to fuse when we have a different experience in open spine surgery? Yeah, I mean, I,
5: I I think it's I think you're gonna have a higher non-union rate. I mean, I think than that you're you know describing. I mean, I don't I don't I don't buy into that it's gonna be uh you know 100% fused. And um you know again I think it needs to be studied to be honest with you. I mean, the reason I'm personally think it's maybe more advantageous is because you know like we discussed, it's it's kind of you know it's with vertiflex, there's no there's no fixation to the spine, so there's mobility associated with it. Can move, now. it doesn't really, but it can. And with this, you can get more of a fixation too. It's almost functioning in the way of a vertiflex, like doing a distraction and fixating it. So as far as the fusion part, I mean, I think it's I think what you're saying is true. You may not get the the union that you're looking for, um, and so I think it it, does, it needs to be studied. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, we're putting them in a flexion uh you know putting the patients in a flexion posture at the end of the day they can't extend with these devices in and so um but yeah i mean that's what what i do to help uh create fusion is, is drop bone graft routines in there uh, between the lamina. And so is that enough maybe not and so um it just needs to be studied to be honest with you there hasn't been really paying doctors doing it and so it's this new this is a new world as us entering into this future world so it needs to be better so maybe it needs to be improved upon like you're saying on improving uh you know these non-union rates so i mean again this would be kind of cool for you guys to comment on be like Look, what's this is the problem with this and if you really want to do it right maybe you can improve on it this way and so i think this work needs to be done i think is the answer so i think let me michael like do you, you have your
4: hand up there real quick
8: go ahead michael so my comment before about the uh, coding so when i do uh, uh, you know an interbody fusion and back it up with an interspinous process clamp and i pack some bone in there maybe there will be some bridging bone uh, there but with the coding part so it's possible that you get some you put them in a brace you get some fusion there but i don't actually code for a posterior fusion so i think you know, the cost effectiveness is something that we really have to talk about later on, not necessarily this, uh, this webinar, but cost effectiveness. And the other thing is specifically about how coding is used. So you, even when I use interspinous process, if, if I pack allograft in there, those spinous process, I just put an instrumentation code for interspinous uh, fixation, not uh, for a fusion code, because it's, it's not clear that that's what we're going to get out of that part. It's the interbody where I put the fusion code, obviously. So yeah. that would be my, my biggest uh, issue or comment about some of the
4: pitfalls in that area. Sorry, I, just, I, just, I, just, okay. I just wanted to add like so a few things about this. There is data to support that when it, uh, interspinous fusion devices were used to back up an anterior construct, like an anterior inner body, they had equal efficacy to pedicle screw fixation. So there right. are some for that. However. There is not good data that shows anything about biomechanical stability, fusion rates, or anything when they're used as standalone devices. So, you know, I also want to make sure that you, we differentiate between vertiflex, which is if a they it does not induce a fusion, there is no decompression, and the idea is if they need a fusion, they shouldn't be getting a vertiflex device. The 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 problem is now we're in a gray area where now when interventional pain doing these interspinous fusion devices, which there's like twenty on the market right now, and they're starting to get marketed as standalone devices. I think we just have to be careful, and I even say this as somebody who, you know, I'm a big advocate for interventional pain doing procedures, that we have to be careful that we don't overuse it and start using it as like truly like thinking we're doing open spinal fusions for these patients. I think we have to hold these for the patients who are not medical, you know, not surgical candidates, the ones who can't undergo a traditional medical screw fixation uh, or maybe the ones that uh, were sort of on the border, on the milder side, they didn't really have any type of instability, but you know, they can maybe benefit from it. You know, so I just think we have to be careful of how we stretch the envelope with it. No, I think you're on
5: point there. I mean, that's, I mean, you just, I mean, uh, to be honest with you, I think in the interventional pain world we do too much of everything. <laughs> so, um, I mean, you're absolutely on point. Instability, you know, someone who absolutely needs a a, a true fusion, a, you can't hesitate to refer those out and send those out. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't pretend to be a spine surgeon. I don't pretend to be able to do those things. I think you just have to know that you have to recognize finding the right right patient population. Someone who multiple surgeries turned down, and maybe they have the other comorbidities can't do the other things, that those are the people that I'm, uh, you know, uh, contemplating for this type of things. And so um, just to give you a little concept of co- cost-effectiveness, Michael, I mean, I deal with this on a daily world, in the private equity sale this, it's more cost-effective than quarterflex. And so now is data there? I mean, no. And so I think we have to um, show that. So as a standalone product, does this work or not?
2: Let me pivot a little bit to surgeons working with interventional pain docs. And you know, frankly, a couple of years ago, I never thought I'd be moderating a session with interventional pain and surgeons sitting together. Um, and I think uh, the other Dr. Lee has some experience working with spine surgeons and bridging the gap. Um, so let me just get your uh, quick take on how to accomplish that. Yes, thank you, Dr. Sue.
10: And also thank you to the PSPS Education Committee for putting together a great program. It's very humbling to be among so many leaders in our field. Um, Briefly, I'm in San Diego in an interventional pain practice with my wife, Dr. Grovey. And when determining which technique or techniques that we decided to pursue for our practice, I think these presentations highlight that there are a variety to choose from with reasonable evidence to support them. Um, For us, we thought that the things that we wanted to take most in consideration as two recent grads with a fairly young practice in a competitive market, was that we wanted to keep things simple, safe, and effective. And we thought that would be best for our patients and our long-term longevity as a practice as whole. So we essentially started with the indirect minimally invasive decompression with the interspinal spacer, the essentially the VertiFlex system. Um, that is a device that we were familiar with from residency. It has indications for multifactorial spinal stenosis. And as Dr. Filowski mentioned, it's a standalone procedure and we felt that it was um, pretty safe and simple for us to kind of uh, get used to as we gain more experience, um, accessing the spine through minimally invasive approaches, and kind of grow and add, adopt more techniques as we go forward. Um, depending on your practice setup and your area, you may choose to begin with either one or multiple of the approaches that were discussed today, whichever makes the most sense for your patients, your practice, and in and, and your area as a whole. However, I would say practically speaking from our perspective, uh, I do believe that kind of starting out doing um, the VertiFlex procedure and having somewhat of a defined uh, niche kind of helped us develop a more collaborative relationship with the other spine specialists in our area as well, as opposed to kind of coming out of the gate um, trying to do everything at once and potentially contributing to a more competitive atmosphere. Um, I think that, um, you know, but in every market, every practice is kind of different, so certainly do what's kind of best for, for your group. I mean, as with anything in our experience kind of um, getting out there and letting the surgeons know that this is something that we're interested in and kind of getting their uh, uh, um, feedback on it, Uh, we did kind of run across that, you know, as, as with anything, every doctor kind of has their preferences and opinions for certain devices and techniques one way or the other and kind of navigating that respectfully and positively can also go a long way. And I think that even though we had some disagreements, um, overall our approach was to essentially respect the current spine community of San Diego and reassure our colleagues that having multiple options could hopefully improve our collaboration as doctors and hopefully uh, help us better match patients with uh, an appropriate therapy, particularly for patients that may not fit clearly into uh, one modality or one therapy or another. And um, it's been, a, a, I think, a work in progress for us and so far has been pretty successful.
2: Okay, and I'm going to finish off with a question for Dr. Naidu about referral to pain management, specifically about spinal cord stimulators, and everyone else, feel free to chime in. Um, As a surgeon, if I see a structural pathology that can be fixed, you know, I'm always thinking, why don't we just fix that? Person's got foraminal stenosis of 5-1 from up-down collapse, let's just fix it is it wrong and in what situations do we say maybe we don't fix this it's a structural problem maybe we send to pain management try to get it better with a cord stimulator and i can always do surgery later meaning we always thought about cord stimulator as a last line of defense what are the situations in which we should think about it as a first line of defense even even when there's a surgical correctable problem
6: yeah, to simplify it, Brian, you know, the way I think about it is, is really trying to identify the pain on whether it's mechanical or neuropathic, and, and that's not always easy, right? I mean, there's a gray area, but you and I have shared patients who have a dynamic instability, and you've said, I'm not going to operate for, you know, all sorts of reasons, whether comorbidities or whatever else, and you've said, let's do spinal cord stimulation, and I said no, because I just know they're not going to do well because there's going to be this dynamic compression on their nerves that's not going to be overcome with stimulation. Um, the best candidates are those that have the chronic consistent neuropathic pain. So you have fixed the structural issue. We can't identify anything that's mechanical. Um, those are the great candidates for spinal cord stimulation. I think in the situation that you're alluding to, in which you're wondering, gee, you know, I don't know how my outcome is going to be with a mechanical fix. Is it worthwhile to try a spinal cord simulator first? Well, the advantage to us is we can do a trial, right? So we we can give them a week to see how it feels, the only downside is if that, quote unquote, fails, and then you go on to do the mechanical fix, the question is, would they have been a candidate had we done the you know, mechanical fix before the trial, and would they have succeeded from the trial? So that's a discussion that we would have to have, and we have had in the past, as far as when is the right time to to do that trial, and when is the right time to intervene surgically.
2: Are there people on the panel who use spinal cord stimulation or have seen it used as a Um, First line treatment, even even in the setting of mechanical instability or stenosis, et cetera. Stephen.
4: Yeah, and I would say absolutely. And I think I think the easiest way to look at this is actually changing our mindset. You know, you know, I I even know after going through you know complex spine training and all, everyone viewed spinal cord stimulation as like this last resort therapy. It was after you've operated on someone's spine ten times and there's nothing left for you to do and there's no pedicle left. Now we can put a stimulator in, and they'll never be allowed into a spine practice again. But the the truth of the matter is, why, right? Why does one thing stop the other from happening? I mean, a thoracic spinal cord stimulator is in your thoracic spine, so it 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 almost never gets in the way of anything you're going to do in the lumbar spine, and it's meant to treat your current pain. So I have plenty of patients that, you know, they I consider them chronic pain patients, and they may have a you know a grade one spondy, they may have the slip. Um, But I don't think it's what's necessarily contributing to all their pain at this time. So I have plenty of patients. I put a stimulator in and then I follow the pathology that's in their spine. And if the pathology in their spine gets worse, then you still can operate on their spine. There's no reason why one has to stop the other or we have to think that one has to come before the other. Um, I just I think we have to change that mindset and realize stimulators are just meant to treat your current pain
2: all right well we're at about 7:30, so we're a few minutes over but uh i want to thank uh, psps for making this possible um i want to thank uh michelle and um everyone for coordinating this and for being on this uh terrific discussion so you have 48 hours to claim your live credits and you just have to go to this link to claim it and i understand that there's going to be uh, another webinar on 12-9, which is seven days from now, um, I think this is a, a non-surgical-based talk, but as I said, you know, I learned so much from my non-surgical colleagues, um, frankly, because even as a spine surgeon, 90% of what we do is non-surgical. So um, I'll certainly be at that webinar, and we hope we uh, see the attendees there as well. We we had uh, over 100 people at one point in this webinar. So I think that's a a great turnout. So thanks everyone. Thank you, good night.
0: Thank you for listening. We want to continue this engagement. Please visit the PSPS website, join the email newsletter, watch the webinars or attend the conference.